0: Those of you staying here, we're headed to Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 1 or 8, I use where, chapter 8 is where we're starting, Matthew chapter 8. Let me, uh, while you're turning there and somebody, if you didn't have the notes, pick them up, somebody's going to move through the odd train, hand them out. True or false? Here we go. The original Thanksgiving was celebrated three, over three days in 1621 with the pilgrims and Indians eating together. True or false? That is True. That's The original Thanksgiving meal consisted of venison, lobster, duck, goose, but no turkey. That is true, okay? Turkey was not on the menu. The city with the oldest Thanksgiving parade is New York City with Macy's parade. It is false. Anybody know what the city is? Philadelphia, Philadelphia. yeah. Philadelphia started it four years earlier. Um, This one. The only president not to recognize or declare Thanksgiving as an annual event was Thomas Jefferson. That is true. He would not do any kind of... Up until Lincoln, it wasn't a national holiday, and every year the president would declare it. And he wouldn't do it. Anybody want to guess why Jefferson wouldn't? He was waiting for Lincoln? That's a good answer, but... uh, It was his view on if the government declares national holiday, it's too much of combination of religious and secular uh, governments. So he wouldn't do it. Was his point of view. The majority of Americans prefer the first meal of leftovers over the original Thanksgiving dinner. Eight out of ten Americans say that the first leftover meal tastes better than the original. The first inflatable animal balloons in Macy's Parade, 1928, they replaced real animals that marched before that. New York City, did they march real animals in their parades? It is true. It is true. Central Park used to be a zoo, and so they would have the animals march, and then they replaced them. Some of our very first missionaries that our church took on for support were Tom Sloboa, Tom Latham and Sam Slobodian. That is true. They were the first two missionaries that we took on uh, for support. Here's a question. The reason we keep the number of missionaries we support monthly around 15 is because we don't want to invest too much money in missions. <laughs> Uh, that is false. Do you know why we keep it around a smaller number? To give more to those missionaries. Uh, just to explain, our philosophy is this, is we'd rather support fewer with more support than many with little support. And the reason we do it is it benefits the missionaries. Because the missionaries have to raise support. If they can raise support by going to less churches, they have a better relationship with say, 20 churches than if they need to get support from 60 churches. You can have a more intimate relationship. And when they come off the field, how does that benefit them? Less running around and visiting. So for the help of our missionaries, and you can ask any one of our missionaries, you can ask many who visit, would they prefer the way we're doing it or the way that some churches do it where they support lots of missionaries for smaller, yeah, yeah. Um, the, I've never met a missionary yet that said, that's a dumb idea, the way we're doing it. Most, all of them that I've discussed with have said, we wish this was the more, this, this was the pattern that most churches do. Our missions, policy, and philosophy is to support any type of ministry work being done in a different ethnic group. Why is it False. We limit, we limit our mission support um, to certain ministries. It's not because those ministries that we, that we don't support are bad. Um, I, I think there's a great benefit and value to a variety of ministries, whether it be an orphanage or a hospital or, you know, helping to train to do businesses. However, that doesn't mean everything that comes down the pike we have to invest in. We have chosen by our missions, philosophy, and policy years ago that we would focus in on those ministries that are primarily involved in doing what? Church planting in the sense in church planting. More than just spreading the gospel, it's church planting. And again, that doesn't mean that the others don't have value. It's just that we are going to invest in those who are indirectly or directly involved in planting churches, training nationals to plant churches, which is becoming more of a a focus because why is it better what training nationals to plant the churches? They don't have to raise support. They know the language already they know the culture already they can live cheaper than most americans can live on a foreign country because they don't have to travel Um, and a variety of things. So uh, our focus is, by choice, we choose to say, okay, we're going to focus on planting church ministries. That doesn't mean other things are bad, but that's where we've chosen to say that's going to be our focus. And so uh, the focus that we have had in this class is the idea of becoming more like Christ. And so I want to just wrap up our whole discussion that we've had for the last few weeks on becoming holy, uh, because that's what we're supposed to become, and that's our biggest battle, is becoming holy. But let me just... Just can wrap up the thoughts that we had in that regard, and uh, and focus on this idea of just okay taking to the next level about loving like Christ. But as we've talked about in in the idea of becoming holy, the Bible gives us clarity that there's a number of activities we're not supposed to be involved in. It lists those things out very specifically. We've looked at a variety of those, and then the Bible also gives us principles or guidelines to say, okay, what about those things not mentioned in the Bible? and uh, it's those principles and guidelines that we've talked about, and we've given a lot of different questions here, how you can be determining. And, um, and with this, does culture impact some of these principles? Does time changes? Yes or no? One of our folk was just illustrating uh, uh, that their grandparent, when their grandparent would go to church, their church would have a communion service where the people had to come forward to get communion. And the grandmother had shared her... Uh, was grandmother or mother? Grandmother. Okay. Your, her mother. Yeah. So when they would go for communion, if they had nail polish on, they would be refused communion. Okay. That was in a culture, okay, in our own culture, but that was several, you know, decades ago. Um, and so sometimes those standards do change. There was, there was in our culture, years ago, there was uh, a lot of churches that were against wire-rimmed glasses and would preach against it, okay? Uh, there was churches that, years ago, would talk against facial hair, okay? And part of that was within that culture, Brother, you'd have a tough time here. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, but, But in the culture in that time, and they were looking, and so, you know, some of those standards came. But we were talking about the idea of, okay, we have to make some personal decisions. Yet there still are some things that you say, okay, what about I got a job offer between Burger King and McDonald's. Which one should I do? you have an opportunity to buy a house here or there, everything being equal, which one should I do? Um, you know, what kind of clothing, what style of clothing should I be wearing? It's all modest, but is there a certain color? Is there a certain style? Um, you know, musical instrument. What musical instrument can my children play or should they not play? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these different questions that people come up with, and baby Christians come up with and very valid questions. Okay, And so some of them aren't mentioned in Scripture. Where do you go with this? Let let me just, I, I wanted to end that whole section with this thought, was the best way to determine a decision when you're dealing with a topic and question and issue is, number one, start off with, okay, let's find out, are there verses that talk about it? Taking a concordance, using your Bible apps, finding out, is there a reference to such and such an item? okay? And we, we've talked about some of those items already. If, um, if you're doing that, make sure you always read the context. Make sure you always keep things within its contextual setting. Then you take those Bible questions or those Bible principles and the questions that we had and you evaluate by that. If you do all that and there is no clear indication Okay, should I work for BK or should I work for McDonald's? Should I buy this house? Should, I do, should, we, should we, you know, vacation in Colorado or Florida? If you're still, you say, we've, we've done this determination and we're not violating any financial standards, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, then what do we do? Then, in my thought is, then you use blank to determine what is best at this time for you and your family. You use the Bible first, and then what else do you use? Your own brain, okay? Your own brain, you have to make... Sometimes some of this isn't, you know, it, it isn't uh, uh, a biblical principle. Uh, using your own brain, what type of what color clothing should you wear? Well, using your own brain, you might look and say, I look better in certain style of clothing, a certain color of clothing. Should we vacation in Colorado or Florida? If everything's being equal, if you want to go skiing, don't go to Florida, okay? If you want to go and be in warm climate, don't go to... Okay, so then it's just, it's, it's very simple. But again, you're talking with baby Christians, young Christians. Encourage them that there's nothing wrong with using their own brain, okay? And they don't have to be dictated to by a preacher or some group. Those types of individuals who want to dictate everything, they are cultic, typically. So uh, anyway, our conclusion is, is this, is where we just want to finish and do something very simplistic at first, right now, before we jump into love. And this is material you well know, but I want to give it to you. Okay? So you mark it down, write it down, use it in the Bible studies you're conducting. We are still going to struggle and face temptations. We want to be holy. We still struggle with with certain uh, temptations. uh, And it will happen until we meet Jesus Christ. But we're supposed to be conformed to him. So what do we do? Okay? I want to be holier. I want to be more like Christ. I want to overcome temptations. So I'm just going to put some verses up here. Okay, And I want you, with, with those verses that we put up here, to say, okay, what should a believer, any believer, yourself, somebody you're doing a Bible study, what should they do to help themselves overcome temptations? Here we go. Let's do this, these verses right here. Practical steps you would tell a young believer they need to do. Or an older believer, okay? And you're giving counsel. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is ready, is you know, willing, but the spirit, uh, spirit is what the flesh is weak. What are they doing in this text? Where do they come from? What's the context? Somebody, I think, mentioned it. They're praying, okay? So what, are we, what is one device, one tool we can use to resist temptation? Okay, so that's a simple one. You, and again, this is for you to be able to counsel others. So just write in the answers as you see fit, and then you can use them when you're dealing with somebody. He that walks with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Don't forsake the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of somebody exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. What's the principle here? What's the help that is given to overcome temptation? Do it. Be around other Christians? Somebody else? Okay, yeah. It's the idea of hanging around godly folk. Hang around the right type of folk, the wise individual, the individuals who are going to help you to do right. Okay, that one's, that one's clear. Here's one. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. What's the, what's the tool? Okay, it's getting into the Word of God and getting the Word of God into you. Okay, very simple. And yet, by the way, if you're counseling, if somebody wants to talk to you, these are some things that you're going you're gonna to be sharing and they're going to go, oh, really? Um so many people hear it, but they don't, they don't hear it totally with their hearts. Here's another idea that goes very similar to what we just said. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Jesus answered, it is written. It is written. Get thee hence, it is written. Not only get into the Word and get the Word into you, but do what else with the Word? Okay, you've you got to be memorizing the Word of God. you got to be committing it to memory so that you can have a stronger resistance against temptation. And if you lead somebody to the Lord, hey, get them into the habit of memorizing verses even like the Romans wrote, or something simple. Here's one for you, okay? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. If we live after the flesh, you're going to die. But if you, through the Spirit, to mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. All three of these verses point us to say, what must we do to overcome temptation? What's that? Yeah, it's that idea of what we'll call is being filled with the Spirit, being yielded to the Spirit, being committed to following whatever the Spirit would have you to do, um, which is on a daily basis that many believers just take for granted. You don't want to be doing that. And so many of you know what it's like. You just say to the Spirit, guide me, direct me through the day. Just keep on reminding yourselves to yield to the Spirit of God. Here's a simple one. Flee youthful us. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. In fact, what did Joseph do when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife? He ran away, okay? So there was a, remember years ago, the, the United States did a, a drug prevention um, promotion and there, the thing was just say, yeah. And so the idea is say no to temptation and get away from it, get away from it. Which sounds so simple, but so hard to do at times. Following that up, flee the same thought, but added, uh, added information. Flee useful us, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, and them that call upon the Lord out of pure heart. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new man which is created after Christ Jesus. So not only run away from that which is bad, what do you need to do? To counter that. Put off, but then... Yeah, okay, this is the idea. Busy yourself with doing or thinking that which is good and occupying your minds, which we'll talk a little bit more about that in the morning service. So will I sing praise unto thy name forever that I may daily perform my vows. This is a really important tool that a lot of people don't utilize. Sing, sing about the Lord. Focus on godly music. When you're tempted, use use godly hymns, choruses to try to get your mind under control and fixed upon the Lord. Music is a powerful tool that comes from the Lord. The Lord Himself is a musician. He's a trumpeter. If I'm not mistaken, um, what does it say? The trumpet, or what other instrument does He blow in Zechariah? I forget. Um, but the the Lord himself is a musician. He's made it for us. It is, music is powerful. I mean, how did you probably teach your kids the ABCs? Singing with a song. Okay? Music is extremely powerful. I, I can put images in your mind, not that I can sing it. But if I start bringing up songs or playing songs, I can bring things to your mind real quick. can change your thought pattern. Okay? And it happens. We, we just you know, does, does modern uh, advertisement use music? Oh, it's powerful. It's powerful. Just take advantage of the good power of music. Can, can music be used to draw people into something bad? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So be careful of the music you use when it comes to temptations, that the music that you're employing uh, doesn't feed your weaknesses but rather it helps strengthen you. Uh, Here's one. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in himself purifies himself. What other thought should we have that would help us with purity? What's the main idea here? Jesus is, he's coming again. Jesus is coming again. So remind yourselves that the Lord is coming back soon. Uh, how soon? We don't know. Okay. Do you think it's soon? Yeah. Yeah. Every one of us goes, yeah, it can't be far off. Um, so those are just some helpful ideas with this. I think this is my last one. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make not provision for the flesh. Okay, oh, there's another couple. Uh, make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust. This one you know that very simply is avoid the people and places that take you into doing wrong things. Make no provision for the flesh. <clears throat> and um, confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another that you may be healed. What's this encouraging us to do? Go to a priest and make confession? Is, is that what it's saying? Catholic Church runs with this one. Okay, what is, the, what is his point here? What? Well, go ahead, Julie. Accountability. Accountability, Accountability is uh, if you're struggling, make yourself accountable to a godly friend who will be praying for you, helping you, and keeping, keeping you on your toes, okay, which is a wonderful tool to employ. And this is my final one. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil has a roaring lion walk about seeking whom he may devour. My thought that I wanted to just convey with you is don't become apathetic. Don't become, don't assume you're okay and there's no more problems or you have arrived. Remember that we are in a battle. How often will Satan try to destroy believers? Once in a millennia? No, he's uh, he's trying to do it all the time. So don't become uh, apathetic, or you will become pathetic. Okay, beware of spiritual dangers. Now let's jump into an area that is mentioned several times in the gospel. Matthew 1 talks about Matthew 8 talks about it. It's where a phrase comes up about Jesus. Now we know that Jesus loved us enough that he came, died, and gave his life. And we understand that. But what I want to focus on is what about Jesus' compassion during his earthly life? What about his social relationships? How did he interact with people? Because that's where we're at. Okay, and so from the Lord's example, what do we know, okay? We read a phrase that frequently comes up in the Gospels, he was moved with compassion or something very similar to it. In the multiple times that it shows up, which is, is, uh, what I wanted to do is do a quirky study and just look at those passages where it says he was moved with compassion or something of that sort, that it's talking about his earthly relationships And it's an interesting study just to draw some conclusions. And so the phrase that we're looking at, that compassion, the splachnoi, that is used in all of these different references, that word meant the idea was to be stirred, to convulse with pity and mercy, to be physically moved. Um, Somebody was just relaying that uh, Bruce Tuttle, they had the bombings this week there in the Ukraine. Did any of you see an update in the last 24 hours? Okay, they had bombings that were taking place in the Ukraine. On Thanksgiving Day, several very intensive uh, bombings were taking place. <clears throat> in the city where, where Bruce is at, there was multiple bombings around the area. And one of the men that he works with went in to, uh, took a truck, and uh, they were delivering Potatoes. They were delivering some items to help people who were in some of the areas where some of the strongest fighting had taken place during the last few days. And so yesterday in an email that came or was shared, um, what was happening is the, the preacher came back and was telling Bruce it was just devastating. The people don't have electricity, they've taken out all that infrastructure, they don't have, unless they have a well, they don't have water, Uh, they don't have heat and oil, it's all been cut off. And they go into these villages and they're delivering things and they said, our hearts were breaking to see these people all of a sudden in such desperate situations and winter is at its onset, but because of the warfare. And, uh, and he, Bruce said, I was moved. My heart is just going out. That's the idea of being moved with compassion, is that you are just, <clears throat> the way some of you happen, when you see some tragedy take place, some family member suffering, a child, you know, you see those pictures, and you're moved with compassion. Those are the phrases we want to look at. But I want you to catch something as we just talk about Jesus being deeply moved by people's needs. I want you to just think with me for a few moments that Jesus, in that compassion, was way different than the religious leaders of his day. The religious leaders of his day wanted nothing to do with many of the people in need, such as who? Go ahead. The tax collectors? Who else? The sinners that they would just group together? I'm sorry? The lepers? Okay. So the social outcasts, there are several passages that we'll end up looking at, but they talk about where Jesus became a friend of the publicans and sinners. We'll see in Matthew 8, he engaged and even touched a leper. Okay? Which, in Bible days, what would you do if there was a leper that came into this room? We would all vacate. Okay, And we didn't understand. Remember, we didn't understand if it was by touch or by wind. Um, Back in those days, they didn't understand. It was like the scientists today didn't understand what COVID was doing. And so there was, how was it being transmitted? Well, they didn't understand initially for years how leprosy was transmitted. So you just stay away from the person. Some of the social outcasts, he heals a Roman centurion's son. Think of how the Jews typically viewed the Romans. How, how did they? How did a common Jew view the Roman? An enemy, an occupier. And so would you have anything to do with a Roman? If you did, some of the Jews would declare you're a traitor. Okay, so Jesus goes to the home and heals the son of a Roman centurion. So he's going contrary to what culture was saying, showing compassion. Uh, a Canaanite girl. He heals the Canaanite girl. Again, she's non Jewish. And in his culture, typically, what were they hearing uh, from the Pharisees? What relationship should you have with a Gentile? None. None. What, what animal did they compare the Gentiles to? A dog. Okay? And dogs in those times were not domesticated with, as pets. They were usually the running as a, as a um, pack dog. And then he even has complex. Uh, what's the problem with John 4? What's the problem socially with the person that he's engaging? She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. And she's an adulteress. Okay, so, he, and Jesus has contact with her where he speaks with her, and then he goes and stays in their town for two days. He's staying in what the Jews would say, Sin City. And so Jesus had this compassion. When you think about children, how was it that Jesus, think of any, any text, how did Jesus portray affection towards children? Somebody's saying it, whispering it. Suffer the little children to come unto me. Why did he say that? In that setting, what was happening? What's that? Who's the day that were keeping the kids away? His own disciples. His own disciples, because Jesus is too busy for kids. So he says, suffer the little children to come unto me. Is there any other time that he engages kids? Can you think of any other time? in that passage where he takes the child and puts the child on his lap in the midst of him and then he says this is what the kingdom and uses the child as an illustration so jesus shows this compassion now think about it in that culture what were how were kids viewed what's that possessions okay what's the old adage that is often used about kids children should be Okay, so that was really practice. Uh, to take you a, a, a step further here, um, how did that society that Jesus grew up in, what did they think about females? Possession? Okay, let me just list off from a Jewish perspective what, you, what w- was being practiced and talked about ladies, females, and just give you that sense of that society. It was a patriarchal society, which means what for somebody who's unfamiliar with that? Men-run society. Okay, it's patriarchal. Female, when they had their monthly cycles, they were considered spiritually unclean. Okay? As well, after they gave birth, they were considered unclean for an extended period of time. You know what unclean means? You don't have much contact. You stay away from that person. Okay, they are Jewish men were not to touch a woman. Okay, that was inappropriate socially. Not even to touch in a public role. Their primary responsibility was housekeeping and giving birth. Primarily, they wanted them to give birth to sons. Okay, because daughters were costly. Ideal was the uh, to have multiple pregnancies, large number of family. If her morality is questioned. If whether she was faithful or not, she has to drink this cup of testing that would help to determine if she were, you know, it's the numbers five. Do you remember this? She would drink the the liquid and it would determine whether she was guilty or not. In that same text, there is no test for a man. It was the woman's morality that was going to be questioned and challenged, but no test for the man okay they were they usually were not holding properties it was the nobility females but typically the ladies as a whole didn't have property they're not supposed to bear they weren't legally allowed to bear witness in court and by the way this isn't so far-fetched just jewish society did american society have these same things Yes, yes, very much so for a number of years. They were not given equal access. When you come into the worship center, ladies, if this was the holy place, this is, you know, the inner court, where are you ladies in worship? You're out there. You're out there. So in that society where the Jews elevated ladies far better than most societies, even in the Jewish society, where are the ladies compared to men? On, on this part? No. Socially, it's quite a difference. Okay? Did Jesus show compassion to ladies? How? When? He's not supposed to interact with them. There's not supposed to be physical contact at all. Can you think of any occasions where he violated that out of compassion? What's that? The The lady at the well. Okay? Extended conversation. Was that the same one somebody piped up? Okay. Thank you. What other ones? Okay, Mary and Martha. Okay, he not only goes into their home, but what does he do with, uh, with Mary? I'm sorry. Yeah, Mary. What does he do with Mary? I'm sorry. He praises her, commends her as an example. He spends extended time teaching her in a private lesson. Can you think of other situations? That Jesus is displaying affection. Compassion. what did he do there ok he forgives the sins and what does he let her do later on he allows her to wash his feet and there's two different situations where he allows to wash feet and how did the, re- the disciples respond in the one situation they wanted to forbid her from touching him and Jesus says let her alone, she has done what she could, for she has anointed me unto my burial. And so you have multiple spots where Jesus, even you know, he allows this woman with the issue of blood for 12 years, somebody who's sickly, who in the Jewish culture, because she has an issue of blood, she would be considered unclean. He knows, okay, he allows it to happen. That's when he turns and says, who touched me? It's not because he doesn't know. But he's trying to do what? Yeah, bring attention to it. Draw her out. Okay? He uh, lets the prostitute wash his feet. He forgives the woman taken in adultery. Spends a long time teaching. Multiple women were part of his entourage. Okay, so Jesus... We're going to look at some passages in, in particular. But Jesus is showing great compassion. Okay, let's pick up and let's do this. Uh, let's uh, head over to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14. And let's start on some of these passages. And we want to look at what happened. What did Jesus do? And we're in Matthew 14. And I hope I have the right thought here. Matthew 14, starting with verse 14. We're jumping down and and this is oh okay I want to while you're there Matthew 14 uh, hang on there for a second in Mark chapter 1 which I overlooked and jumped I thought they were together they're not in Mark chapter 1 a leper comes to Jesus and it says Jesus was moved with compassion towards the leper okay so that's our first instance where a leper comes and he's moved with compassion do any of you remember what he does with this leper in Mark chapter 1? He what? Okay. and this one, he touches the leper and he cleanses. And then he tells the leper something very unusual. Don't tell anyone, but rather do what? Go to the priest. Okay, why did he do that? What, what, what did you say? They had to verify it was a real miracle. So Jesus does that. In Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 14, who does Jesus see? And how is he, what, what is his response? Matthew 14, 14. A large, a large crowd of people? Okay, I want you to see a distinction here. In Ma, in Mark chapter 1, he's dealing one-on-one. Okay? Matthew 14, who's he going to deal with? Crowd. A huge crowd. And he's moved with compassion. What does he do for them? Okay, so it's not just being moved in feelings his feelings are turned into some type of action, okay? And, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to be overly simplifying, but Jesus is moved with compassion, and if you put it in its setting, okay, this is the time where it says in the next uh, phrase, he's teaching them, and he's going to be in this desert place, and there's this multitude. He is moved because of What? Why is he moved to help out these 5,000 people? What's their situation? Uh, Go ahead, Ron. They're like a sheep without shepherd. What does he mean by that? They are sheep without a shepherd. What does that mean? What's that? There's no guidance. Okay, who should be shepherding those people? The Pharisees. What were they doing? They were exalting themselves. They were fleecing the flock more than feeding the flock. And so as a result, Jesus is moved with compassion because they have this spiritual poverty. They have this spiritual condition. That's not the only thing that moved him. Not only their spiritual need, what also moved him? the physical need the healing that is needed by some of those people and then when he feeds them wh- what motivated him to do something for them those people are simply after being with him for a long time they're hungry they're hungry they don't have food and so Jesus is going to minister to them and feed them and, and out of compassion, okay? So he feeds them, he gives them meat, uh, meat. Now, Matthew chapter 9. This is a passage that you're more familiar with, parts of the passage. Matthew chapter 9, towards the end of the text. You're very familiar with the part that says, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth labors. Okay, you know that part. Here's the context for it. Go in verse 35. Jesus went about where? All the villages and the cities teaching in the where? So who's he ministering to? Jewish people. And preaching what? The gospel. And doing what else? Healing, how much? Every sickness and every disease among which folk? The folk. Okay? <laughs> Amongst the people. When he sees the multitudes, he's what? Moved with compassion on them because they fainted. That's what the King, my King James reads. Does anybody else have something different in a translation? They were weary... Okay. Uh, What'd you have? Distressed. Distressed? Okay. It is interesting that the sheep without a shepherd, I have it in in the other text. Okay. The distress means to be oppressed, to be put down. The weary is, you know how when, um, if I can relate to, do you ever have a a bully at school, uh, a teacher, uh, somebody at work that just, no matter what you did, you were Wrong, and you were picked on. And after a while, you just felt weary of this hassle. That's the word he- here, where it says that they, they were people that they fainted. In other words, they almost had no hope. Th- th- can you relate to that? That you just, it it's just seems so overwhelming. What is overwhelming for them? What has sucked the life out of these people? the religious leaders. How did they do that to the people? What's that? They're controlling them. What else? So many rules, so much that they feel like it is absolutely impossible to ever please God. And then here comes Jesus, and he is just moved with compassion. Again, sheep without a shepherd. And so what he does is he says, okay, we need to pray for the Lord of the harvest to minister to these people. So that's the context that he says, hey, you've got to pray. He is saying to his disciples, you've got to pray. I really care for the needs of these people. And so we go a little bit further. In Matthew chapter 15, let's see what we have there. Matthew chapter 15, to get a sense of another one of the occasions where this phrase comes up. In Matthew chapter 15, jumping down in verse 32, a great, the, and great multitudes came unto him, having with them, what kind of people? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm down in uh, Matthew 15, with verse 30, okay? And what kind of people are with them? The lame, the blind, the dumb, the maimed, many others. And they came before Jesus. He healed them, insomuch that the multitude wondered. And when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, they glorified God. Jesus called his disciples and says, I have compassion on this multitude. And this is now the second time he's going to feed a large group. This time is the feeding of, you probably have a paragraph heading. The feeding of the four thousand, and again he's moved with these people because of their needs. They've been with him for three days, and so he does the miracle of feeding. Why? Because he's moved with compassion. In Matthew chapter twenty, Matthew chapter twenty, another one of the instances where this phrase comes up that tells us about the Lord being moved with compassion. This is on his way to Jerusalem. The settings are so interesting. He's on his way to Jerusalem. This is his last trip. He's got his eyes fixed to go to Jerusalem because in Jerusalem he's going to... Got to figure this out, folk. It's in the latter part of the gospel. Okay, he set it for Jerusalem to die. And on his way, he's coming through Jezreel. As he's coming through this area, these two blind men come up and they pray, have mercy on me, thou son of... David. Okay, and the crowd say to them, "Shh, shh, shh, shh." You're going to disrupt Jesus, and his own disciples are really they're befuddled at this point. Jesus is determined to go to Jerusalem. His disciples just before this had said, "You shall not go to Jerusalem. You shall not die." And Jesus said to that man, "Get the." Okay, so Jesus is moving this way. He's determined. He fixed his eyes that way, and he's got a mission some of us, when we have a mission, do not distract us. Part of the reason is we'll forget the rest of the mission. Okay. But in all honesty, when we're on a mission, we don't want to be distracted because we want to achieve the mission. Okay. Okay. So, and you just, you got to get there. You got to get this thing done. And we don't necessarily see people. Jesus, it says in this passage, they're crying and they're at a distance, kept at a distance. And they say, and Jesus stops. He hears them. He says, what do you want me to do? Open our eyes. And Jesus had compassion on them and he touches them. He touches them. In the middle of all of this busyness, he has compassion for others in need. I know this is very simple, this is something you could do, it doesn't sound profound, but it's living profound. It is coming to a point where we say, hey, listen, let's slow down and let's see people. And what I find really interesting, does Jesus favor large crowds or individuals? Yes, right? Who does he see? All of them, all of them, which is just, it's profound that he does this. Luke chapter 17, I can't remember what Luke 7 is, so I've got to flip over there. Luke chapter 7, it is another one of those settings, and he is going to be moved with compassion in this setting. Oh, oh yeah, Luke 7, you got to go there. Luke 7, Luke 7. He is coming to the, as soon as I say it, you're going to know it. He comes to the city of Nain. N-A-I-N. Does that ring a bell? The city of Nain? Who does he run into? Do you remember? She's often referred to as the widow of Nain. Okay? What's happening in this case? He comes walking into the town, and what does he see happening? There's a funeral procession. The main characters here are the widow, which means... Her husband's gone. And who's the funeral for? Her son, okay? And there's lots of people there, so she's not alone. But as he comes, he says, behold, verse 12, a dead man carried out. And, it, and Luke gives us a little tidbit of information, very important in this passage. How does Luke describe the boy, the son? The what? The only son. How come that's important? Does that, does that intensify her agony? Okay, yeah. Okay, so we get this information. That's very important. And she's a widow woman, much people out of the city with her, and Jesus could have easily said, there's others to take care of her. And by the way, were there other people around her? The answer is yes. They weren't family, but there was people there. Some of them could be professional whalers. We don't know, but he identifies there's lots of people. And verse 13, when the Lord saw her, what happens? What's it read? Okay. He says he had compassion on her, and then he says the words that that kind of would shock anybody. Stop weeping. Stop weeping. And it's like, what? That sounds insensitive. Okay. But Luke has already told us and the other readers who don't know, you know Jesus. Others who have read this for the first time, what has Luke already said about this man who says, oh, he's, you know, somebody could say he's insensitive. What has Luke just said about him? He is moved with compassion and he says, weep not. He came and he touched the buyer and they that that bear him, they stood still and he says, arise to the young man. Well, what, what, um, What taboo did Jesus commit? He touched a corpse. He touched a corpse. Okay, and so in this setting, he is very moved by this need of this woman when he saw her and he heals her son. Okay, there's another text in John 11. You're all familiar with John 11. It's the raising, uh, another raising of a dead person. This is the most popular one in the New Testament. Who is it that's raised in John 11? Lazarus. Okay, when Jesus came... Okay? And Jesus is moved with compassion. Just, it's it's amazing because his disciples told him if we go to Bethany, which is eight miles from Jerusalem, and they have just put out a warrant for his arrest, what, what, what do the disciples say when Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem? Or I'm going to go to Bethany? What do they say? You shouldn't go. You shouldn't go. And then they say, Well, if you're going to go, we will go with you and we will. Die also. Okay, so Jesus is headed there. He's putting himself at risk. Again, he's God. He knows what he's doing. But he's putting, from a human point of view, he's putting himself at risk. When he gets there, okay, what does he do that shows great compassion? He weeps. He weeps. In that, that's the point. When he shows, um, what word do we want to use? He shows empathy. Sympathy, empathy. How do the crowds respond? The, this, is, this is where the compassion... It never says Jesus was moved with compassion, but the observation by the people standing around say, see how much he must have loved him. And they observe his compassion in this case because of his reaction at the moment where all of a sudden they're going, he really cared. He really cared. Some of us are weeping and wailing because it is the thing to do. But Jesus is showing great empathy, great sympathy, and they respond to that. In Mark chapter 5, in Mark chapter 5, and th- this, is a, this is a very, and you know the story, but towards the end of the story is a really the interesting part. The maniac of Gadara, what's his problem? Why is he a maniac? Okay, he's, he's possessed by, do you remember what is your name? My name is... Okay, so he's possessed by multiple devils. Jesus does what for that man? Okay, he frees him and casts the devils. Where the story goes, he casts the devils into the swine, and the swine. Okay, they make themselves pork suppers. Okay, okay. And so they're all. And what does what what transpires with the maniac? What what happens afterwards? I'm sorry. He's, yep, he's of sound mind. Where's he at? Where is this? It defines him and it describes him physically. Um, uh, And they came to Jesus and see him that was... I'm in verse 15. Who was possessed with the devil and had the legion. He is... He is sitting. What was he before? Okay, he was all over the place before. They couldn't even keep him by chains. They're trying to get us to observe there's a great transformation. He is sitting, which implies he's calm, okay? He's clothed, which we all know what that implies, okay? And uh, Matthew makes it very clear. He's in his right mind, okay? And the response of the crowd? Okay. Okay, they're they're wondering what's... and And they that saw it told them what befell about the devil and also the swine. And they began to say to Jesus, leave, get out of here, we're afraid of what you can do. When he... Now verse 18. When he was come unto the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him, asked him that he might do what? Go with him. In the next phrase, Jesus reveals something very interesting. Go home to your friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for you and has had compassion on you. How did Jesus show his compassion? With this one man that nobody else wanted to deal with. Jesus went out of his way and de- dealt with him. And he says, you've got to tell your friends about my love, my compassion that I've had for individuals my point is that we're gonna, I want to dissect it a little bit more okay? but the point is did Jesus only once in a while show compassion feel compassion did he do it on the non-busy days no so did he do it just for just for the big crowds in order to be impressive with crowds no he was also for the down and outers okay? Jesus' compassion was basically shown how far? Everywhere. And not only did he feel compassion, what does he do with it? He shows it. He acts with his compassion. Let's, let's do a little bit more about that next week, okay? Thanks for your input and your following along. We're setting a good stage for some personal challenges. Thanks so much.